awesome. So why do we need 20s and 30s ministry? And uh, you'll recall a few weeks ago, I, I told you when I, was, when I was in my 30s, and I went to speak at a church, and I was talking about raising up a new, new generation of Christian leaders, and I was asked uh, by a dear woman uh, in her 80s, why do we need a new generation of Christian leaders? And I just, in all the compassion and gentleness that I have, I said, because you're dying. And um, <laughs> what I meant to say was, you know, because every generation passes away, and the next generation needs to step into their, their place. Uh, or as has been said before, all great people, all truly great people are dying, and I don't feel so well myself. Um, we do. We, we believe in generational investment. We, we want to be a, a church that passes things to the next generation, not, not one that's pushing the next generation back, but calling them forward and, and really uh, giving to them uh, what has been given to us and believe that they'll go on and do more. Uh, I mentioned to you last week that my, my pastor, who, who led me to Christ when I was 18, uh, passed away. Uh, recently, we had his funeral on Monday. He was 98 years old, and he spent his whole life uh, investing in, in the next generation, uh, which is now my generation, your generation, many of you. Uh, we attended, Melissa and I were able to attend his funeral, and I got to spend some time with a lot of people that came to the Lord around the same time that I did, and, and some who were called into ministry the same time I did. There, were, there was a large group of people from our youth group uh, that really just were called uh, by this incredible man into a deep relationship with God and just chased after him uh, from that point on. Uh, I was standing uh, near his casket on Monday, talking with one of those friends uh, named Alan, and Alan is a year older than me. Um, we went through school together and played sports together, and uh, I looked at him. We, we actually, we came to the Lord around the same time. We finished college together. We went to seminary together, and I looked at Alan, and I said, where would we be without him? And Alan said, well, I don't know where we would be. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be here, and I'm confident that you would be in a worse place than me. <laughs> and he's right on all of those things. Um, I remember uh, Alton Paris, who, who was my pastor. When Alton came to my church, and I was, I was not between nine and 10 years old, and uh, one of the first things he did was remove the clock. There was a clock in, that hung on the wall in the back of the church, and, and he took the clock down. And my dad said, oh, that's, that's the first sign. Well, then, shortly after that, he changed the worship time. Instead of starting at 11, we started at 10.50. And I remember the conversation around the lunch table in my home. My, my dad assumed, hey, if we start at 10.50, we get out at 11.50, because church can only last for an hour, right? And uh, boy, was he wrong. And uh, he was shocked to think that Alton would change the start time just so he could preach for 10 minutes longer. 
but he did. And uh, it was just an incredible time and an incredible man. And uh, continue uh, to just think and reflect on the, the impact uh, that he had on my life. I, uh, I'll be honest, it, it's the only time, and I've been to a lot of funerals, it's the only time in my life that I have not, I, I actually uh, got anxious when they started to close the casket because I just, I didn't want it to be over. I didn't, uh, just some finality in the closing of that casket that's just meant to me, he, he's not coming back. And I uh, struggled with that probably for 24 hours or so, and then my wife actually sent me a devotional that she had run across about the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. And, and basically it says that you know, it's, it's great to have an Elijah. If you're an Elisha, it's great to have an Elijah in your life. Uh, but eventually Elijah leaves. And when Elijah leaves, that's not the time for Elisha to quit. It's time for Elisha to step in to the things that Elijah has invested and imparted to him time for him to step up. And so I, I know that all of you have people in your life um, that have invested in you, that have poured into you, that have had impact on your life. And you look at your life and you think, where would I be without this person or that person? And then, uh, unfortunately for all of us, they will go. Every, everyone, everyone dies. And Sometimes you look and you think, what ne what's next? And, and I just want to say, uh, for every Elisha, it's great to have an Elijah. But there will come a time when Elijah will go. And in many ways, that's not your end, it's your beginning. Step up, step in, uh, and believe God for more. All right, so uh, today I want to uh, talk a little bit from Psalm 103. Uh, psalm 103 was uh, my pastor's favorite psalm. It was one of his favorite passages, uh, definitely his favorite psalm. It's actually the, uh, the passage that we read at his uh, funeral on Monday. And so I'm going to read through that and then talk about it a little bit. So if you have a Bible, uh, let me just say this. <laughs> you should have seen the looks on our faces the first Sunday he stood in the pulpit and said, open your Bibles we thought that we had hired him to read the Bible to us. You mean we're supposed to have Bibles of our own? Yeah. So anyway, if you have a Bible with you, you want to open to Psalm 103, uh, you can also see it on the screen. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate 
and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he re- has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey the the word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Now let's pray. Lord, I I pray, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come, come like the fire and burn. Come like the wind and cleanse. Come like the light and illumine. Convict, convert, consecrate until we are all completely yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So Psalm 103, really, first and foremost, Psalm 103 is a call from David to David. It's a call from David to David. Now, it can be a call from David to us, certainly. It can be a call from the Lord to us. But as it's written by King David, he is talking to himself. He says, bless the Lord, my soul. He's actually speaking to his own soul. And what he's saying is, soul, redirect. Soul, get your focus right. Soul, think about the Lord. Focus on the Lord. He is telling his soul to reposture and redirect and to worship God with all that he is. He is speaking actually to the deepest parts of himself and saying, focus on the Lord. Don't focus on your troubles. Don't focus on your difficulties. Don't focus on your disappointments. Don't focus on your sins and failures. Focus on the Lord. That's what David is saying to himself. Now, we don't know for sure where David is at this time. Chances are he's in a tough place. Maybe he's in one of those places of struggle, and we all go through places of struggle. Times when, when life is difficult, challenging. Times when we get distracted. Maybe we just get too busy. Maybe we get disappointed. 
Maybe we're just sad. We get into the pit. And David is speaking to himself in the pit. And he's saying, come out of the pit. He's saying, come out of the pit and put your focus on the Lord. Psalm 103 is a call from David to David. In the first two verses, David actually speaks to his own soul. And he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's telling his soul. He's telling his soul, get your act together. Soul, get your focus right. My inmost being, in my inmost being, in the deepest parts of me, focus on the Lord. The deepest parts of me, praise his name. Praise him for who he is and remember. This is a common theme. We've been looking at this a lot lately. Uh, We're looking at the story of Joshua as they cross the river into the promised land. And Joshua builds the, the stones. He puts the stones together, makes an altar the river stones. We talked about that for several weeks. And, and Joshua points at those stones and he tells the generation coming after them, remember, remember the things that God has done. And, and here David is saying the same thing. He's saying, remember, don't forget who he is. Don't get so focused on your own life. Don't get so focused on your own problems that you forget who he is. I think some of us spend a little too much time trying to fit God into our lives rather than putting ourselves into his presence, into his being, who he is. And David is saying, remember who he is. Remember the blessings and the benefits of God. Remember the blessings and remember the benefits of God. And then he lists in verses three through five, he lists some of those benefits. One of those is that he forgives all of our sins. He forgives all of our sins. I think sometimes we we have a hard time with that. We have an easy time believing that he forgives other people's sins and maybe our smaller sins. But the bigger sins in our own lives, that's a little more difficult. Or maybe the sins committed against us by others, maybe that's a little little more difficult. But what David is saying here is all. He forgives all of your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He pulls you out of the pit. Listen to me today. If you're in a pit today, God didn't put you there. If you're in the pit today, he doesn't want you there. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with his goodness. Interesting thing, I, I, won't, I won't call her out, uh, but one of, our, one of my dear friends, one of our church members sent me a, uh, a sermon this week to listen to. And I listened to it, and it was a great, great message, great message. And here's the, here's the thing that I loved the most about it. Uh, 
this preacher says, just reminded us, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world before the foundations of the world. You know what that means? That means God had a plan before sin happened. If Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world, before the question was asked, God had an answer. Before the problem, God had the solution already. And so whatever your sin, before you ever did it, God knew it was coming and he had an answer for it. And the answer for your sin and the answer for my sin is the cross. Is the cross. He forgives all of your sins. He heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving compassion. He satisfies your desires with his goodness, with his goodness. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now, let me say, first of all, that there is a need for justice in the right context. But we need to understand and be clear about this. When it comes to you and I and our relationship with God, we do not want justice. Not good. Trust me. You don't want justice. We want mercy. We want mercy. Because if we get what we deserve, it won't end well. Not for us. And so we want mercy. Now, there are some, and I, if, if you have heard this language or you've used this language, I'm not trying to slam on anybody, but uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is an emotional thing, kind of just helps you to think a certain way, but some people use the language of forgiving God. I, I find no merit in that. I, find, I, I just don't. I, I, found that, I find that not to be helpful or useful. Uh, and the reason is because he's never failed. <laughs> he's never done anything wrong. He's never made a mistake. In every situation, he has done the right thing. Every time. And he never will fail. It's not like we're hoping that we can get to the end of this race without God messing up. He never fails. He is perfect. He does not need our forgiveness. He has never failed. He has never forgotten. He has never made a mistake. My dad, it used to frustrate my dad so much when he would tell me, hey, go do this. And then he would come back an hour later and he would say, did you do this? And I would say, no, sir. And he would say, why not? And I would say, I forgot. I forgot. God has never forgotten. Not a single time. There may be times when you feel like he has forgotten. 
There may be times when you feel like he is slow. There may be times when you feel like he is not looking at you or noticing you. I promise you, he is not slow. He has not forgotten. And he has never once taken his eyes off of you. He's perfect. He's perfect. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing in love. We've kind of, I don't know, some have said that God created humanity and then we return the favor. What that means is God created us in his image and then we created him in our image. And it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. But we, we, we create in our minds sometimes a God that we think we want uh, rather than the one that's described to us in Scripture. And the, the God described in Scripture tells us that sometimes he gets angry. And sometimes we get uncomfortable with that. We're, oh, God, surely God never gets angry. Well, apparently he does because it says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, Overflowing in love. Overflowing in love. He does not give us what we deserve. Now, in verses 11 through 13 in this passage, God used, or David uses three expressions to communicate God's love for us, God's forgiveness towards us, and just God's heart toward us. And the first one, he says, is high as the heavens are above the earth. Now, in our minds, we kind of think heaven's here and it comes all the way down to here and that's where earth starts and it goes here and they're just touching each other. And we, we actually pray, you know, that we want heaven to touch earth and that's not a bad thing to pray. But in David's mind, as he writes this, understand what he's saying. When he says as high as heaven is and as low as the earth is, he's talking about extremes. He's talking about heaven being as far away from earth as you can get. That's what he's saying. He's saying that God's love for us is not measurable. Just as the distance from earth to heaven is not measurable. It's not like, okay, get my tape measure out and I will tell you, Danny, you take this end and just walk until you get to heaven and I will tell, you know, how many feet is it? It's not like that. It's not measurable. What David is saying is the distance between who we are and where we are to who he is and where he is can't be measured. It can't be calculated. And then he flips it around and says, that's what his love is like for you. It can't be measured. It can't be calculated. His love for you is so much more, so much greater, every comparison fails. You cannot measure it. And then he turns around, if you, if you don't get that, he says, let, let me put it this way. He takes your sin and he separates it from you as far as the East is from the West. Now, I know this is confusing for football fans because apparently the teams that used to be in the Southwestern Conference are now in the Southeastern Conference. 
And so apparently Texas, Oklahoma, Texas A&M, and Arkansas are now southeastern states. And so it can be confusing if you're trying to understand east versus west, but that's not what this is. This is not football. When David says he separates your sin as far as the east is from the west, again, what he's saying is it's not measurable. The distance is so great. It's as far away from you as it can be. He has taken your sin and he has removed it. He has taken it out of sight. You can't find it. You can't find it. That's how incredibly powerful and vast his forgiveness is. As far as two things can be from each other. That's you and your sin. And then he uses the description of a father. In verse 13, he says, as a father has compassion on his children. And what he's describing here is the heart of God. He's described this incredible God who is incredibly good and incredibly gracious, but incredibly powerful and and strong and over and above everything. In some ways, unapproachable so holy, so great. And now he says, but his heart is like a father. His heart is like a father. His heart is for you. The heart of God is a father heart. Now, in verses 14 through 16, he talks about us. And uh, his description of us is not nearly as impressive as his description of God. Uh, He says we're like dust. Our days are like grass. That we're like a flower in a field that the wind comes and just blows and it's gone. In other words, we are fragile. And we are weak. And that's, that's really who we are. But the Lord is with those who fear him. So we're over here, we're like grass, we're like fragile flowers that break when the wind blows. But, that's the bad news, our weakness, but the good news, his strength, that he is with us and we are with him when we fear him. Now, we don't necessarily like that word fear and uh, we kind of run from that. We think fear is a bad word. Uh, The Hebrew word for fear is yare, it's Y-A-R-E. It's in the Old Testament 330 times. And what it describes is reverential awe. And this is a good thing. In fact, it's in many ways an involuntary response. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And what was the response? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live with some people who aren't that good either. We're all in trouble. That's the response of Isaiah. And he wants to lay on his face because he has seen the glory of God. 
Peter was the same way. He's in a boat. He's fishing with Jesus. Everything is great. They're having a big time. And then suddenly he looks at Jesus and the glory of God is on him like he had not seen before. And Peter falls down in the boat and says, oh, Lord, you need to find another boat. You need to find another boat. You should not be with us. We, we don't measure up. Last week, we talked about Peter, James, and John being up on the mountain with Jesus, with Moses and Elijah, and the presence of God comes on them. And it says that the clothes that Jesus was wearing lit up, lit up bright as, as can be. And Peter looks, and again, he's on his face. Oh, God, this is too much. Reverential awe. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about a reverential awe. And Scripture says clearly that our proper response towards him is to give him reverence, is to be in awe of him. Don't ever lose the wonder. Don't ever lose the awe. Don't ever lose the mystery of who he is. And then David, he, he's, he's told all of that. He's, he's called himself, really, to worship. He's spoken to his own soul. He's spoken to his own heart. He's spoken to us in the way that he describes uh, the Lord and how he calls us to obey him and how he uh, talks about his heart towards us and how his forgiveness has separated our sins. And now he finishes up this psalm by calling really all of creation to worship. All of creation. He calls the angels. He calls all that is, everything, everything to turn its focus on the Lord. We get distracted. You know, sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we, uh, we go through a rough time. Sometimes we get in a ditch. Sometimes we're uh, depressed, disappointed. And what David is saying is it's time to redirect. It's time for us to get our attention off of us and onto him. It's time for us to take our eyes off of the problem and put our eyes on the solution. They've done some research uh, recently. Neurologists have st studying the brain, and they've discovered that thankfulness and anxiety operate the same space in the brain. And so you, you can't have both at the same time. You can't be thankful and anxious at the same time. And so some professional athletes actually have taken this, and in stressful situations where, you know, it's high pressure, they are practicing the recitation of things that they're thankful for. And it's taken, you know, neuroscientists decades to figure this out. My wife's known it forever, um, because every time we ever sat down for a meal, she would say, okay, we're going to go around the circle. You tell three things you're thankful for. And we always thought, oh, gosh, okay, we've got to do that again. Didn't we do that already? It's not the kind of thing you do once. It's a pattern of your life. And if the pattern and the posture of your life is thankfulness, guess what goes away? Fear, anxiety, 
worry. If the pattern of your life is thankfulness, and that's what David is saying, don't forget. Remember his goodness. Remember his benefits. Remember to be thankful. Focus on the goodness of the Lord. Get your eyes off of your problem. Get your eyes off of yourself. Put your eyes on the Lord because he is the redeemer. He is the one who will pull you out of the pit and restore your life and fill you with himself, with his love, with his blessing, with his benefits. Now let's pray. Jesus, we want to put our focus on you. Open our eyes. Open our eyes. We want to see you. We want to see you in a way that that will change us. We recognize, Lord, that we need to be transformed by our gaze upon you. Open our eyes to see you more clearly, more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come and uh, get into place uh, rather quickly. And uh, we're going to have a time of ministry, and I just encourage you, uh, if you need prayer today, if you, if you find yourself in, in this place where, you know what, I, you're exactly right, I need to refocus, I need to put my focus and my attention on him and not on myself, but you maybe need some help doing that, we would love to pray for you and pray with you. Could be there's something else going on. You may need uh, physical healing. You may uh, need relational healing. There may be some other issue going on that you just want prayer for and need prayer for. I encourage you to come. Could also be that you have never said yes to Jesus. You have never given your life to him. Not that you haven't tried to fit him into your life, You've just never surrendered your life to him. And if that's the case, we would love to pray with you and pray for for you today. So once you stand, and I just encourage you as we move into this time uh, to respond and respond quickly. Our teams will stay as long as they need to stay. As long as there are people that want prayer and need prayer, they'll, they'll stay here. Holy Spirit, we love the way you work. We love the way you move. So we just ask you to do in this room what only you can do. To do in our hearts what only you can do. In Jesus' name.